Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Here with Brad Stone, author of The Everything Store, on the sequel to that great Amazon book, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. It's already a bestseller. It's going to be taught in business schools, and the company is approaching a $2 trillion market capitalization. And not The Everything Store, but The Everything Company. So you definitely want to stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. You can catch this show via our partner Fountain Bookstore over Facebook Live. And please subscribe, rate us, and recommend us to friends and fam. And we are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FullDRadio. Joining me from Bloomberg News' glossy San Francisco uh, mothership is Brad Stone. What is it? Global Technology Editor at Bloomberg News. He's been promoted so many times. The book is Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. How are you, sir? Robin, I'm great. It's great to see you. As you said, we worked together back in the day, and it's great to be on full disclosure. Thanks for having me. You are fully disclosed starting now, sir. Um, you know, I have so many breathless questions about it. I, I look out my window at night, and I, I look into the starry skies and say, what is Amazon? What is Amazon aspiring to be? This quirky company that sent us books and compact discs when I was in college and then forayed into Zappos with shoes and uh, Woot.com and Audible, and I've lost track of, of everything it's become. Suddenly, you fast forward, and I'm going to read from the introduction of the book, if I may quote you. The Amazon that I had written about was worth nearly $120 billion at the end of 2012. The company's market capitalization touched a trillion dollars for the first time in the fall of 2018, eight times more valuable in less than six years, and returned to surpass that threshold apparently for good in early 2020. My Amazon had under 150,000 employees. By the end of 2020, it had an astounding 1.3 million employees. I was writing about the Kindle company, but this was now the Alexa company. Also, the cloud company and a Hollywood studio and a video game maker, robot dicks manufacturer, grocery store owner, and on and on and on. And this just in, they took out uh, MGM Studios for a pittance earlier this week, just under $9 billion. What say you? Well, it's unbelievable. I mean, this is this was the sort of whiplash that um, inspired me to revisit this topic to become a total glutton for punishment and spend another couple of years obsessing over Jeff Bezos and all of his various adventures. It had, it was simply a a different company, and in some regards, Robin, it was it felt like a better story. You know, mm -hmm. the Everything Store was the origin story. It was the rise of the company during the dot com boom and the near death during during the bust. But this was. This was um, the story of a big company getting so big that it sort of threatened every corner of our economic reality. And that doesn't happen, right? Big companies tend to slow down, like the law of large numbers. And, and so I started to think about, okay, well, what, you know, how, how did they pull off this feat? 
And also, you know, as the company's transformed, who is this guy now who is striding across the global stage that looks nothing like the guy that you and I remember from the late 1990s? He's like a Herculean, you know, Vin Diesel of the business world, who, by the way, is showing up on yachts and at Wimbledon courtside. And so it was also, it felt like a totally fresh character study. Who is Jeff Bezos today? I don't even know with the spin the bottle or, or wheel of fortune or price is right thing with this to even start with something. There's so many, again, mixing metaphors. You should block my metaphors as a great editor, but there's so many jump balls with this company. Do I start at Amazon Prime? What was the tipping point? Is it day one? But let me start with this. I come from a, a markets and Wall Street background, and you are often judged as a pure play. If you're a retailer, as you know, Brad, you're covered on same store sales, profits per square foot. If you're a tech company, if you're a you know a Walmart, they're very um, rote and granular metrics that Wall Street follows. Is there something that this guy Jeff Bezos did with Wall Street over the past fifteen or twenty years that convinced them I'm none of the above? I'm just a hydra that does everything and just chill and step back and trust me. I'm going to point to two two moments in time. One is the 19, the original 1997 shareholder letter where he kind of laid out the way he was going to run the company. And he said it wasn't you know, short-term quarterly profits. It was going to be cash flow and market share and long-term, and a long-term orientation. And that's the beginning. But as you remember, during the dot-com bust, and then almost for 10 years after that, he kept getting hammered for losing money, and the stock was in the single digit. So it wasn't just that he declared that he wanted to run the company differently. It was his sort of consistency with doing it. But then the second, I think, major turning point is the first quarter of 2015, when he finally reveals the true underlying economic profitability of AWS. And that's a big moment in my book where, you know, this, this secretive division that folks generally from afar thought was, was a low margin, low profitability, and kind of sapping Amazon's attention and maybe even some of its profits suddenly emerges. They, they have to disclose it. It gets so big in the first quarter of 2015. Some analysts joke that it's kind of like the biggest IPO over the last 10 years, even though it wasn't an IPO. It was just the company revealing its numbers. And AWS shocks the world with how good a business it is, and the stock price takes off. So I think those two things, kind of telling Wall Street how he was going to run the business and the fact that he was going to lose money for a long time, and then following through on it, and then showing that the strategy pays off in early 2015 is really when the the naysayers, the Steve Ballmers, who who you know who went on Charlie Rose and said it's not a real business, Charlie, and you know they they're proven wrong, and folks get on the Amazon bandwagon, and since then, right, the company's I don't think has lost money, and the stock price is up by a factor of ten or more. So is everything else now the way Wall Street judges this company essentially a diversion away from AWS? This is a tech, this is a cloud company. You might look at it as the old Dell EMC exodus of yore with some other sideshows to make the entire corporation multinational more sticky. Yeah, I don't I don't think so, right? It's more complicated than that. It's a it's a it's a, it's sort of like an old school conglomerate. It's a Berkshire Hathaway, but instead of really diverse and distinct properties, all the all the units in Amazon are connected in some very opaque ways. For example, you know the retail business runs on AWS. So does Alexa. Alexa's brains are in Amazon's cloud, and AWS has Amazon Retail as its first and largest customer for any new service. 
Um, obviously, Prime Video, a subscription service, it not only runs and streams on AWS, but it's for free for Prime members and wrapped into the bundle of subscriptions that is Amazon Prime. So this is why the thing is so challenging for regulators to get a hold of. It's this it's this complicated sequence of, of businesses that appear unrelated, that are quite connected in the background. And, you know, Amazon, I think, actually really strives to conceal some of the ways that those businesses are connected. And then just one more thing, there's also an advertising business that's a true juggernaut inside of Amazon, $6 billion alone in the last quarter. And one of the reasons why Amazon bought MGM to be able to uh, introduce that, that catalog of content that MGM has into Prime Video, into IMDb TV, and to run video ads against. And I got to tell you, Brad, you just don't see a company worth one and a half, one point six trillion dollars. The rule of large numbers you really hit up against. But I'm reporting from their quarterly results at the end of March. Uh, <laughs> free cash flow increased to uh, twenty six point four billion dollars. But just look at net sales on a company of this size, up forty four percent year over year to $109 billion versus $76 billion in the first quarter of 2020. The pandemic was a real seminal moment for them. I mean, we suddenly, not only was everybody at home binging all sorts of things and making AWS more indispensable, after all, I believe Netflix is on it, Disney Plus is on it, e-commerce explodes because we're all at home, uh, but suddenly Amazon Prime, gosh, forget the TV stuff, you want everything delivered. People are trying to get uh, wipes. They're trying to get, uh, you know, bare essentials. There's hoarding going on and people staying at home. And and it's like he was prescient in that something like this would have been vindicated. And, and lucky. I mean, and in a perverse way, because obviously it's an absolute catastrophe for the, the country, the world, and a company that has all the advantages going into the pandemic then gets even more dropped in its lap because all of its traditional retail rivals you know, suddenly either close their doors or have to convince customers that their places are safe. And look, at Amazon, you know, they kept operating. They were a lifeline for families, including mine, by the way. But they, you know, they definitely didn't come through it unscathed from a public image perspective. I think that, you know, there were workers there and, and employees um, who, who raised their voices, who said Amazon was putting employees at risk by bringing them into the fulfillment centers, particularly early on, you know, March and April of 2020, when I think there was a lot of ambiguity around social distancing and, and you know, PPE wasn't really readily available. I think Amazon did a maybe as good a job as they could have eventually in, in instituting safety precautions in the fulfillment centers. But there are some things they did that feel a little unconscionable. For example, firing the whistleblowers who were agitating mm -hmm. in their warehouses for more safety precautions or the employees who started out agitating for, for climate justice at Amazon and, and then started to address safety and Amazon dismissed them. That is evidence of, you know, a little bit of a cruel culture at Amazon. Here's the asymmetry, and I'm going to somewhat personalize this. When your last book came out, was it in 2012, The Everything Store? Yeah, 2013, yeah. 2013. Notoriously, uh, his now ex-wife, Mackenzie Bezos right. comes out and uh, you know trolls your book, effectively slams it on Amazon, which begets a right. sort of Streisand effect of sorts that everybody's talking about it. It's kind of personal and everything. It there, I think I saw a New York Post story about his wife going on and on. They've since divorced and stuff, but I was shocked in reading your book at 
the shadow and the persona. When I saw him on 60 Minutes at the turn of the century, when I hear about this guy driving across the country in his Honda Accord, or he used a, a door as his first desk, you know, in that janky first Amazon headquarters, right. I thought he'd be kind of a lovable, touchy-feely guy. And yet you hear about all of these things in the past five to seven years about cracking down on unionization, the infamous, you know, pee bottles at the distribution facilities. Yes, there's a $15 wage that the company subscribes to overall right now. But there's also this serious mean streak. Like I remember him dressing down people or the way he kind of does it in this book, I see more constructively with Alexa and the the, the contactless grocery store. But right. Well, he's you learned ever, he, can't ever... do it. He, he can't do that anymore. He can't rip up documents and walk out. Hmm. I just, why do you have to, you know, this comes down to the old thing we, we asked about Steve Jobs, and I know it's management 101. Do you have to be feared to be this efficacious? I, I'm certainly not, right? Their business history is replete with managers that had a better touch who were more em empathetic. But look, I mean, one of the themes in this book is how Bezos and his colleagues constructed large-scale systems that were self-service in orientation with a lot, high margins and high operating leverage. And and a great example is the global marketplace, where they usher they they expanded the marketplace all around the world. They lowered the barriers of entry. They essentially made it self-service, automated tools for shipping, for language translation, and that sounds great. But what happens is millions of sellers around the world log in, and you get counterfeits, you get fraud, you get hoverboards that are exploding in people's homes, and all that is entirely predictable. It's a very much Facebook-like move fast and break things. And when you think about what Bezos has, it's almost like this, this um, aggressive streak to build, to compete, to get there ahead of competitors, to construct a global empire. And you and I might start to think about, well, what does it really mean when we have a self-service global platform? Do we need to be careful of, you know, of the unintended consequences? Sure. And they, and that's what he doesn't have, right? He he'll address them later with other automated technology systems to go to fight to try to fight counterfeit and fraud. But he, I don't know if it, if it's a lack of empathy or what. But the systems he systematizes things, and only later I think intellectually starts to 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 compute what the negative consequences are, and then think about how to address them. I got to ask you, you, you know, with respect to the chapter, the gold mine in the backyard, if we talk about Amazon Marketplace, you've covered Google and other premium big tech brands. They're very protective about that front door. And unlike, you know, Yahoo, which has since had several owners, it's not a crowded place. Now you go onto the front of the Amazon page and you just search for something, you know, a, a basic, I don't know, headset jack. There's so much confusion. You don't know if it's a sponsored ad. You don't know if they're harvesting advertising data on you. You're just like, just get me the best price. I'm an Amazon Prime person. I don't want to do it in an exploitative fashion. For example, I, I you know, if I want to buy Gillette Sensor Excel blades. They could give them to me off label from a, a a Malaysian, you know, contractor. Like it's become this crazy. You know, you walk into a dollar store and they just throw all this stuff out in front of there because it's not about appearances. It's not about form. It's literally all just you know lowest common denominator. How much could that opportunity have been worth to him that he said yes? Let's just go open the door and dilute the the storefront. Right. Uh, the the gold mine in the backyard in the book ref refers to search advertising, and and Bezos was he was. You know, really, he had really high standards about ads on Amazon for a very long time. The, the famous story is um, Sony was trying to advertise Skyfall in 2012, and Amazon wouldn't let the ad on the homepage because James Bond was holding a gun. 
And of course, the great irony now is that uh, Amazon owns the, the, the Bond franchise via the MGM acquisition. But basically, in 2017, they're still trying to build the advertising business. And he starts to experiment with search advertising and very much the Google-like model. And in the experiments, they see that it does lead to a decrease in, in customers finding what they want. But it's so profitable and he sees so much investment opportunity from introducing search ads into the search engine that he he does it. And I, I do think it sort of goes against the, the so-called customer obsession that they have at Amazon. But the result is an $11 billion investment in Prime Video in, in 2020 and now an $8.5 billion acquisition of MGM. I mean, the other opportunities were so good for him that I think he, you know, he's mined a little bit the economic opportunity of the search engine. And it's become this over-merchandised, as you say, and less useful taxonomy of private label brands and pay-for-play search ads and, and, and global sellers with strangely fabricated brand names that nobody recognizes. And ultimately, a selection that includes some products that aren't great quality. So I, I think they, I think you put your finger on something there, Robin. They risk depreciating the customer experience because their eyes are on the next thing, entertainment, healthcare, satellites, or whatever. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Brad Stone. He is the author of the new bestseller, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. This is the sequel to the Everything Store. I wonder if there's going to be a trilogy of this if we're talking about... Jeff Bezos in space now that he's kind of nominally retired and he can focus on his extracurricular pursuits. But talk to me more about Amazon Prime, right? We thought that was a curiosity back when it was announced. What was it in the mid-aughts? 2005, yeah. 2005, the idea that you could amortize, you could take shipping out of the equation if somebody could pay a lump sum payment, which has gone up roughly every two years or so. It's gotten more dear than when I first subscribed to it. But that you take shipping out of the equation, that has struck terror in the hearts of all manner of retailers because free shipping has become the industry standard. Of course, we know it's not free. These guys have invested in battalions of, of airplanes, of trucks that you see on Sundays delivering things. I mean, you can get, you know, we used to joke about what was it, Cosmo.com or whatever that thing that's was right. in New York in 2000. They would deliver Thin Mints to you for free. That, that's actually yeah. getting done now. Turned out um, that didn't work. They went on a business. But these guys are in business and They're nobody is it, thinking right. and, and shipping costs are dear. And of course, people would have said, I think a McKinsey person would have poked holes into this and saying, well, if you can't count on UPS or, or FedEx, it's going to be cost plus and the US Postal Service is not dependable. And so he goes off and invents a logistics company on his own. Right. So let me tell you something that you might find surprising. I don't think really Prime is about shipping anymore. So in 2005, Amazon had maybe a dozen fulfillment centers in North America. And so it did, It could take you know, even a week or, or, or several weeks to get a product that might not be in the closest fulfillment center. So guaranteeing two-day shipping and then accelerating it if the, if the product wasn't close was a real perk for customers. And now Amazon has more than 800 fulfillment centers, sortation centers, distribution hubs in North America. One is a couple miles from where I'm sitting. One is probably a couple miles, Robin, from where you're sitting. And whether you pay for Prime or not, $119 a year now, you're going to get it fairly quickly. So what Bezos did and his executives back probably 10 years ago now didn't understand it at the time is he started to migrate Prime to a kind of all-access pass to the best that Amazon has to offer. And it was important because when people are 
mem- members of Prime, as you know, often when they're members of any subscription club, they they do this strange, I think, unconscious thing where they try to maximize the benefit. So Prime members just tend to spend more on Amazon by a by a factor of two or three, and so. Prime over the years has become less about shipping because you're going to get the package in a day or two anyway, and more about content. And the centerpiece, the main course of that meal is is video. And so it's it's the new movies that you get on Prime Video, the TV shows, and pretty soon the new productions that they're going to get with, with MGM and that vast catalog of library content. And in addition, there's other kinds of content, music, you know, Kindle, photo storage, and et cetera. And the funny thing is, Prime members don't really actually sort of know <laughs> what it membership entitles them to, but they all have a couple of things that they use reliably. Now, it used to be that a Procter & Gamble or others, they would be enthralled to the Walmart price. You'd have to go to Benton, Bentonville, Arkansas and genuflect before these people and accept any terms that they say. Now, I hear from so many merchants out there that you live and die by how Amazon treats you as a kind of a third-party merchant. There's uh, a tremendous amount of abuse. They can mine information. They can turn around and private label what you had kind of spent all of this this sweat equity and goodwill on. Tell me about that. I mean, Amazon is right. It's the ten thousand pound gorilla for for any brand, for for any marketer or or marketplace seller. And and the truly frustrating thing I think for for these companies is Amazon tends to operate in these businesses where it has scale as a kind of faceless beast, right? There's not somebody there to take your calls if you're if you're a brand. You're basically dealing with a machine and an algorithm. And you know that so that's frustrating. And then I you know you're right that Amazon has prioritized like a lot of retailers growing a private label business and that's you know when you walk into Costco and you see Kirkland or you walk into Walgreens and you see you know Wal- Walgreens ibuprofen, Amazon started with that actually relatively late. And the difference is uh, that they have a sort of infinite, you know, vault of data from their third-party sellers. You know, think of an infinite shelf where you can look at not just the Tylenol and Advil sales, but every possible brand of painkiller or nutritional supplement or piece of apparel. And Amazon managers have allegedly, although in my book I, I have some examples, looked at what was selling to craft a competing product under the Amazon Basics mantle or any of these other brands that they have. And so that's Jeff definitely created a lot of frustration among among their partners, and they've gone and complained to the governments and uh, and the regulatory authorities in the U.S. and the EU, and it's it's being looked at. And Amazon can say, well, competitors do it, but you know there there are differences. It's both a retailer and a mark and an e-commerce platform, and I think it's it, that'll be a, probably a productive line of inquiry for for uh, regulators that are trying to curtail Amazon's growth. Brad, how blindsided were you by Whole Foods? acquired for $14 billion in cash back in 2017. I yeah. knew that Whole Foods was a struggling brand. I mean, retailers had their own private label, organic things that were pricing pa- pressures. But why did he see that as such an attractive bauble? And by the way, fast forward four years now, and you walk into a Whole Foods, I got to tell you, the experience is very different. It's a right. it's a glorified fulfillment area. You have these, you know, Whole Foods delivery people going around with these foil bags. Uh, you know, they're, they're, positioning for, you know, they're trying to box you out for the premium piece of feta cheese. And <laughs> it's largely been forgotten. And I'm reading in this book the, the pains they incurred to create this kind of touchless store that would not have been a Whole Foods. Right. You know, the top secret Manhattan Project prototyping, go back, do it again, do it again, do it again. So the Amazon had sort of struggled in in grocery delivery for 
almost a decade before they bought Whole Foods. And Bezos didn't really see it as a, as a land rush opportunity. He was laying back a little bit. And it wasn't until Instacart really rose up and got a lot of venture capital funding and Google started launching Google Express, their, I think, now pretty much defunct shopping service, that he kind of took notice. He started a service called Prime Now, but you know it wasn't it wasn't profitable, and I think they realized that when it comes to consumables and fresh groceries, people most people still prefer to shop in stores, and that's going to be 95, 95 plus percent of of all the activity there. And Whole Foods, you know, John Mackey was sort of beset by activist investors, and the opportunity presented itself. Now, Robin, it's interesting that you say that because I feel they haven't done a lot with Whole Foods. Like, and, and it's interesting because more recently, you mentioned the ghost stores, these cashierless stores. They have started to stamp those out around the country. They're called Amazon Fresh supermarkets. And some of them have the cameras and the ceilings and the sensors and the shelves to determine what you're buying when you pick something up. And others have these dash carts where when you drop a product into your grocery cart, it automatically charges you. So that I believe, not Whole Foods, is the future of Amazon in supermarkets. They're going to create so here's their a, own here's line the of stores. Yeah, yeah. What's fourteen billion in cash among friends? This is when you talk about a one point six trillion dollar market capitalization company, and and you talk how many employees now? One and a half million employees. Again, Wall Street doesn't even break out the Whole Foods numbers. It's not like they even bother asking anymore. This is not the Fire Phone, right? Which is like a hundred, right. hundred, two hundred million dollar write off. This is fourteen billion in cash. This is well, an they entire have a, workforce. Yeah, they have a physical retail line on their income statement, and it really hasn't grown since they acquired Whole Foods. So you can see why. And look, they they probably there. I, I do think there's a little bit of a religious difference there with John Mackey and his happy band of organic warriors in Austin who won't stock Diet Coke or or Doritos. And it's not that Amazon likes junk food. But they do. They the corporate compass points to what consumers want, and in this case, give us our our Cool Ranch Doritos or our fiery hot Cheetos. So the the advantage of Amazon launching its own supermarket is not only to use technology and AI as a kind of differentiator, but also to offer the kind of selection that I don't think Mackey, while he walks this earth, is ever going to allow Amazon to do. And of but course, imagine, imagine yeah. Target had acquired Whole Foods. My point earlier is they would have been scrutinized on same-store right. sales, on margins, yeah. on density. There's this asymmetric warfare thing that's going on here. Wherever you think, and we're going to get into this with antitrust, you have him figured out. He expands into a whole other area where he can argue that, look, we're not a monopolist. We're just out there innovating, and it's day one, and we're being uh, ambitious, and we have a manifest destiny uh, do you see what I'm saying? I mean, this is you're this is the Wall unfair Street, thing. You're saying Wall Street really gives Amazon – they not only give Amazon a pass for kind of lackluster operating performance when it comes to Whole Foods, but they actually penalize its competitors because when Amazon does that deal, Kroger and, and yeah. Yeah, the Safeway brand of companies, those stock prices all went down. So I think maybe Wall Street puts a lot of faith in Amazon, maybe maybe too much. Uh, maybe they value its kind of competitive uh, threat too highly. In fact, this week, Robin, you might have seen there was a there was a report that Amazon might introduce a line of drug drug stores. I think it was in Business Insider, and suddenly all the drugstore stocks fall. But look, I mean, you know, as we've seen, right? Amazon doesn't necessarily knock it off the park out of the park right away. But I do think to get back to the Amazon Fresh supermarkets. They kind of zigzag on their way, and historically, they get there, right? And and I do feel like 
the, the opportunity of groceries is so big and untapped for a company that already has close to a $2 trillion market cap. They will continue to push there. And, and to go back to the first point, investors are patient. They will go along for the ride until Jeff Bezos you know, con- conquers the last frontier of retail, which is food. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Brad Stone, author of the new bestseller, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos, and the Invention of a Global Empire. This is the sequel to The Everything Store. They're very quick reads. I have to ask you, how did you even get any modicum of access after the bad blood from the first book? That is true, uh, Robin, and, and folks might remember, yeah, the, the Jeff Bezos didn't like the Everything Store, and you mentioned McKenzie and the One Star Review, and I also had one from Andy Jassy, the the new CEO. He didn't he didn't like the book, but you know the wounds heal, and after a couple of years, when I reapproached them, I think Amazon had kind of come out of its shell at least a little bit, you know, and recognized that they were they are such a big company that they can no longer hide in Seattle as kind of corporate recluses. And they, you know, I sent an email to Bezos. Of course, he didn't respond. And I sent I sent a memo to Jay Carney and some of his deputies in the PR department at Amazon. And, and they said, you know, eventually they came around and said that they would uh, allow me to talk to members of the senior leadership team and that Bezos would decide toward the end of the process whether he would uh, cooperate. And when I got to the end of the process, perhaps not predictably, he he didn't make himself available. So maybe there are some wounds that haven't healed. But we he's also such a disciplined guy that I would argue the book actually doesn't suffer at all from that. I have got plenty of his 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 personality and his business wisdom and his drive represented in the book. Is it maybe just maybe that since you know the Everything Store came out, he became the owner of the Washington Post? He shelled out two hundred and fifty million dollars for this, which was orphaned, you know, in the in the newspaper wars and Graham Holdings. And maybe he has more empathy for the journalistic pursuit. I mean, you could talk about him and the the Washington Post, you know, reporter held in Iran, Jason Rezaian, and how he had to scramble jets and personally intervene in in getting him out. Um, now he's a he's a film mogul. There might there might be more of an empathy for storytelling. The irony I mean, being that he's yeah. like the biggest bookseller by far, right. and that you put out a best selling book, and he helps stoke that by you know his wife coming out and criticizing it. Right. No, I I think maybe on some intellectual level he he might have more sympathy for the for for the for journalism. But I don't I don't feel like any of that uh, enlightenment has been refracted onto my projects or in fact any any news organization that's ambitiously or aggressively covering Amazon. Unfortunately, I don't see him as uh, showing more sympathy in that regard. I mean, what other what other arrow can we pull out here? I mean, Zappos, Woot, there's uh, Kia, gosh, uh, Audible. But the Washington Post is a personal curiosity in this case. It's not under the Amazon letterhead. It's right. Jeff Bezos making an investment personally. Tell us about that. Did he roll up his sleeves? Because you don't see a lot of transparency into the financials. You can tell from a kind of a verve and the the hiring that they've done and the digital presence that they get it. But has it been a, a financial investment for him or was it more of a philanthropic right. kind of noblesse oblige? Yes, it's it's not a financial investment, but it's interesting. I have a chapter on this in the book. And in 2014, the, the management of the Washington Post uh, comes to Seattle and presents Bezos basically with the first operating budget. And the right. projections have the Post losing money 
over and he a said, couple no, of I, years. I can't, I can't <laughs> go said, for that. Yeah. I'm not going to do it, even though that's pocket change to him right. even back then. But no, he was he was pretty strenuous that he wanted to put the, the newspaper on solid financial ground. And what he allowed them to do is he gave them the runway to to basically limit the analog business, the, the salespeople, um, the, the local journalists, and to pivot into a national newsroom with digital sales organization. And he got in there. He meets with them every two weeks. He has them present him papers, uh, these six-page documents, which is how he prefers to digest information. And he told them, bring me new things. And, you know, he created, he brought his sort of system of invention to the Washington Post. And we can argue that he got lucky a little bit, quote unquote, lucky with the Trump administration and the fact that, you know, national news had a glorious revival and the Post journalism was was excellent in the in the years of Trump. But, you know, he also, I think, brought he, he allowed the Post to undergo the uncomfortable transition. And he, yes, we don't know their underlying uh, economic circumstances right now, but I do believe the paper's profitable. I think it has been for a couple of years. I think it's got something like 3 million digital subscribers and its ad revenue, its digital ad revenue is way up. So by all, I think by, you know, in all variables, he has, he has rescued the post and it's, he deserves credit for that. And, uh, you know, we should juxtapose it then to some of the, the jewels in the empire that aren't shining so brightly like Blue Origin. But when it comes to the post, I think he's, he's been a force for good. Let me ask you, the ripped uh, Vin Diesel, Jeff Bezos, was that at the Allen & Co. conference? Was that at the Media Mogul conference where they all wear kind of these sleeveless vests and they come out? Yeah, 2017, yeah, with the glasses. Do they call him like Bezos Prime? Yeah, get the pictures everywhere. You could Google it. Like, And he's been, you know, they have him in front of uh, uh, The Rock Johnson and uh, Vin Diesel. Talk to me about the Studio 4A because... uh, Again, they could just be agnostic and they can go out and acquire all sorts of content to make Amazon Prime's subscription service stickier. And they could say, all right, we'll just buy it from anyone and we'll have this as a kind of a loss leader or we'll do it break even. Or they could do the true heavy lifting and go out and do things like the marvelous Mrs. Maisel's, the various uh, uh, projects that they have. We talked about them rolling up their sleeves and acquiring MGM Studio for $9 billion. Isn't that not congruent with this culture of kind of bullet points and present things to me? And how do they check off with kind of civilization and empire? It almost re- it's a little inside baseball, but it reminds me of the show Silicon Valley and the guy had the conjoined triangles of success. And there have been some Wall Street Journal stories and everything about how the studio types are, are not really in love with this kind of this bean counter bullet right. point memo culture. Right. It will surprise no one who who you know follows Amazon to know that when it came to Hollywood, Bezos wanted to formulize it. He wanted to systematize it. How can you boil down the process of creativity and picking hits and, and making famous actors and shows? How can you boil that down into a formula that's repeatable? Like he couldn't believe that you they were making decisions that could be that could be millions of dollars decisions and they didn't know they couldn't test them they they didn't know whether something would be successful and in fact the first few sort of forays of Amazon Studios they called it the scientific studio and they would have users vote on what movie pilot or TV show pilot they wanted to see before they picked it up to series or they would they would have online control groups focus groups where they could test names for shows or different actors. And ultimately, it slowed them down and they kind of abandoned it. But even in 2016, 17, Bezos was basically giving his employees checklists of things. 
you know, every property we pick up has to have these 12 factors. And they were hilarious things like cliffhangers and civilizational high stakes and violence. And, you know, and, and the, the creative execs in, in Hollywood were a little embarrassed by it because they knew you can't go tell an you know, famous director that they've got to have these 12 things that the boss wants them to have. And so, look, I mean, with the purchase of MGM, I think they've kind of realized that creating franchises and epic hits that can resonate not just in West Hollywood, but also in India or, you know, Brazil, new markets that Amazon's entering, that, you know, you're going to need professionals. You're going to need intellectual property recognizable around the world, RoboCop, right, which MGM owns, and, you know, and, and, and work, um, work from that foundation. And Disney, Disney's been an excellent illustration of this with the Star Wars franchise, the Marvel franchise, minting, you know, event series, it seems like, a couple of times a year. And so Amazon is, I think they've discarded some of Bezos's more curious ideas about idea creation and have really then gotten into the traditional Hollywood business. And I got to ask you, so are they really up for this spending spree, the likes of what, you know, HBO Max had to shack up now with, you know, AT&T couldn't tolerate this, as you know, you cover this as a tech editor. And so I don't know, HBO Max, Discovery, Netflix, uh, Disney Plus, are they up to kind of, I mean, it's one thing to make Amazon Prime more indispensable. It's another thing to be a premium film studio, which they kind of are right now with MGM. Are you going to be able to spend $20 billion through all of these various 13-point memos? I mean, Robin, whose game does that sound like if not Amazon's, right? Mm-hmm. This is like that the fact that it's difficult and expensive is like the Bezos calling card. He's attracted to that, you know, to the fact but that can it's that be system? can that be systematized? We saw that with AT&T also, where those guys, a very different culture right. from the telco in, in Dallas, right, tried to go in there and do that. Can this be, can, can you reduce this to an algorithm or a formula and said, all right, well, this works for the Lord of the Rings TV series. Go and buy me $2 billion more of this. Right. Well, what I'm saying is I think they've gotten away from his desire to systematize everything and they're willing to trust some real true Hollywood development executives and they've hired a ton of them who now run that shop. And he's no longer trying to break things down into, the, into, into his geeky formula. So I think they've learned a lot from the missteps and there have been really big ones, right? They had a Me Too situation in Hollywood. You know, they had all sorts of flops. Um, they bought Woody Allen films and a TV series that went nowhere. So I think they've licked their wounds and they've learned their lessons and they're getting into the game in a more traditional way. And they're going to happily spend to do it because video is so important to the prime ecosystem. Uh, Brad, before we get into antitrust, I have a question from a listener. Uh, joining us from London, actually, Romy asks, how is Bezos interfering or preventing his employees from unionizing? Oh, they're absolutely, he absolutely is. I mean, he, he I quote him in the book as saying, the big, one of the biggest threats to Amazon is a disgruntled and entrenched workforce. And he, he viewed early on that the kind of you know, unions that were um, renegotiating every few years with the U.S. automakers would limit Amazon's flexibility. And you see it in Bessemer, Alabama. You see it elsewhere. Amazon fights like hell. They've got all the advantages in terms of talking to their employees in, in, in the shop and sort of, you know, threatening them ob- obliquely with the, the idea that they might close a, close a warehouse if it unionizes. And, and the workers, look, I mean, they've voted, they have voted again and again against unionization. So the other, I mean, the other thing Amazon can do in places with kind of bleak economic options is it can go and offer, you know, a 15 or a $17 an hour wage and a healthcare package. 
and and workers you know appreciate that and it is a it is a company that people want to work for so i think for the foreseeable future um you know the unions you know which have been in perpetual decline now for decades you know have their work cut out for them in terms of really you know bringing amazon's workforce into any kind of a collective bargaining situation you know hq2 which you covered in the book was that an effective use of their mental bandwidth and their publicity bandwidth after all it won them uh unionization enemies in new york aoc kind of brandishes amazon being sacked in long island city for hq2 and now they're running up against antitrust hurdles in in Washington D.C. And, and a lot of other towns, Miami, you know, Nashville, Richmond. These guys legitimately thought they were contenders for what would be hundreds of thousands of jobs and expansions of airports and light rail. And was that just so much of a pony show? It was a it was a terrible mistake. I, I think they misjudged the shifting climate around big tech. They were fleeing Seattle, where you know the the. Uh, the sentiment had turned against the company for things like gentrification and homelessness and rising home prices. And they they conducted this bake-off. Bezos was a little jealous of Elon and the Gigafactory uh, um, incentives that he had gotten in Nevada and Foxconn in Wisconsin. And they conducted this bake-off at a time when Amazon's market cap hit, hit a trillion dollars for the first time, and he became the wealthiest person in the world. And AOC got elected, and the progressive left was emboldened. And, and they selected New York and Washington, D.C., and they really had no sense or feel for the shifting political landscape in New York. And then the union issue came up and they got clobbered. But look, wow. Amazon wins in the end. The third, the third part of the book is called Invincibility. And because even though they got a black eye from HQ2, it really didn't slow them down at all. And indeed, Washington, D.C.'s attorney general chimes in this week, uh, you know, on May 25th, was it Tuesday, he said, that he's suing Amazon on antitrust grounds, claiming the company's practices have unfairly raised prices for consumers and suppressed innovation. Um, lawsuit alleges Amazon illegally maintained monopoly power through pricing contracts with third-party sellers. You covered this extensively in the book, and it was so densely reported. And I frankly don't know how you shut it down, like the editor at Simon & Schuster is telling you, just like, shut up already and deliver me a manuscript, because things keep changing. I mean, after all, MGM, this company is constantly in the news. Antitrust is constantly in the news. I didn't even get into so many other aspects of the Amazon flywheel, but focus, if you will, on antitrust. Is it dominant in any one sector that I think lawmakers sufficiently understand when they bring not just Jeff Bezos or Jassy forward, but a panoply of other big tech execs to say, you guys are kind of Ma Bell 1984, Standard Oil, early 20th century. This is how we're going to break you up, and it's going to hold up in a court of law. Robin, I think you raise a good point, which is that Amazon isn't dominant in the conventional sense. Microsoft in the 90s has 95 plus percentage market share. It is a monopolist. The case takes years against Microsoft and it, and it doesn't get broken up. And in fact, today, Microsoft is the larger company by market cap. You know, fast forward to today, Amazon is maybe high single digits in retail, about 50% in e-commerce. Um, one of a number of big tech companies that are dominant in cloud computing. And the case is just going to be difficult. Now, Carl Racine, the, the uh, AG in D.C., brings a case uh, in, in May, which is basically saying that Amazon's price parity agreement with sellers, with brands, that they can't list at a lower price elsewhere uh, than on Amazon is anti-competitive. I think there are things that regulators and lawmakers can do uh, to curtail some of Amazon's techniques. I think Amazon probably ends up walking away from that. They've done so actually in, in, in Europe to an extent. 
So that hurts them, but it's not the existential threat. The idea of a breakup after a years-long regulatory process or, or legal case at a time when it's not just Amazon, but five big tech company targets that are overwhelming the Department of Justice and the FTC, that I have a hard time seeing, particularly because Amazon isn't really a monopolist in the conventional sense. And Bezos said it at his last investor meeting. He said, think about mobile operating systems. Have you, do you know of any small startups that are creating mobile operating systems? You can't think of one. But in retail, there are obviously a ton of small players. And Shopify, the Canadian company, has built a tremendous business in, in, in online retail. And so Amazon has, I think, a pretty good defense there. But there are certain kinds of conduct that will have to be addressed. You know, you took the question out of my mouth. Is is there a Mr. Pip to this uh, dominant Dr. Pepper? And again, I've thrown 50,000 metaphors at you. I love it. Mr. You notice Pip. I'm not a Mr. Pip. Or, or even a Dr. Skipper, if you go into a Safeway. Is Shopify, this player in Canada, suddenly the one that third-party merchants are turning to? Because it has had a, I don't, I don't want to sound mercenary in saying a spectacular pandemic, but as everybody's been shifting to e-commerce, this has been looked at as the alternative. I mean, you talked about iOS and Google's operating phone mobile operating system, Android. Is that you know shaping up to be the alternative to Amazon as a merchant solution? Here's the thing. When you're a company of Amazon size, you serve so many constituencies and you're going to disappoint some of them. And, and brands have been frustrated with Amazon. You know, they don't want to compete in this in this wild frontier global playing field against all of these brands, many of them overseas that are lowering prices and sort of stripping out brand value. It's a race to the bottom. And what Shopify has done is is basically they build tools and websites for brands to go directly to their customers. And that's what companies want. They want to control the relationship with their customer. So Shopify is one of the greatest examples of you know, corporate value creation in the last five years. Um, it's, it's a great illustration of how Amazon is vulnerable to some nimble newcomers. But you know, it, it, it hasn't slowed Amazon down either, right? That, that stock price and market cap keeps coming up because going up because Amazon's about so much more now than retail, including obviously cloud computing and devices and, and entertainment. You know, let's take it back to the original foray in books. After all, you know, in the few minutes we have left, we are being hosted by Fountain Books, uh, an indie bookstore giant, which has nonetheless struggled and tried to find its existential footing uh, over the past, um, you know, what, 10 years? And I know your battery's running out. So let's make the best of this. What do books mean to this company? Is that like a, a forgotten line item? I describe it as the child of the previous marriage. And that is just a cruel thing to say. But, you know, Be he, Bezos, he'll, he'll focus on a, on a new business and he'll nurture it and he'll obsess over it. And that was the Kindle 15 years ago. And you, you can see the way he places the import, he values and ranks the importance of these businesses by what, what he talks about, what appears in the press release, where it appears higher up. And frankly, the Kindle and the book business hasn't been that high. And in fact, I've got an anecdote in this book where he's talking about staffing requirements and someone wants him to add to the marketing and PR team on the book business. And he says, well, why would we do that? There's so many more important things that we should be doing. And aren't we doing just fine in the book business? So unfortunately, I think they've they've sort of, it's not to say that there aren't dedicated people working on the Amazon books business, but the attention and the focus, it has moved on. And look, maybe for, for stores like Fountain Books, that's good because you don't want the eye of Sauron there in Seattle lasered in on, on your business. 
Well, close us out with the three or four percent of battery life you had left. I need to send you an adapter. You need to adapt, son. I left uh, my charger. I left my charger at home. What can close I say, us Robin? out. Tell us. Tell us what's next and what's going to be in the in the third installment. I mean, gosh, you've devoted so much of your life to chasing this man down. Robin, if if you hear that I'm working on a third Amazon book, I want you to come find me and clock me over the head. But let me just say this: the the Amazon Unbound, I is a, is about a great business story and a, and a great a transformation of the wealthiest person in the in the world and you know it, it's about an incredible business evolution and about a dominant monopolist and, and the way in which it, it needs to be checked if in 10 years bezos has made an impact on philanthropy if he's addressed climate change in the way he's promised to do with the 10 billion dollar earth fund if blue origin has gotten off the ground literally and you know opened up the space frontier in the way that clearly SpaceX and Elon Musk have already been doing, then he'll have written another chapter in his in his story and in his legacy and maybe even changed some of the negative sentiment around him right now. And then it will be worth for someone, maybe not me, uh, another 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 book. But you know, right now, um, the, it feels like a chapter's ending, right? July 5th, he gives up the CEO role. And, and we'll see if he really moves on and where he spends his time. He, he, if he's sailing on his, his brand new yacht on the high seas, then that's less interesting than if he's made a real serious commitment to, to philanthropy and to, to continuing to work at Amazon and creating new, interesting new things. And of course, on the Washington Post and the space company Blue Origin. You were listening to prolific Bloomberg Silicon Valley slash tech slash everything editor Brad Stone, his book, his bestseller is Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos, and the Invention of a Global Empire, Simon & Schuster. Uh, you have to read it. It's the sequel to The Everything Store. They are page turners. And uh, do you want to give us your particular digits on social media and will you be touring the book virtually or physically? Uh, Robin, I'm, I'm at Brad Stone on Twitter. You can visit me there. My website, brad-stone.com. It's, I'm a fan of Full Disclosure. I'm a fan of yours, Robin, and your book. And I'm just so so pleased to have been on the show. And thank you for I'm having a, me. I'm going to send you some Mr. Pibb and a new battery, sir. I love Mr. Pibb. I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly and our host, Kelly Justice at Fountain Bookstore, which launched my book way back in 2017. Full Disclosure Podcast, NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to friends and family. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Hello to our radio listeners out in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C., down in SoCal and in the gorgeous mountains of North Carolina, and coming soon back across Virginia. Message me if you too would like us on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. Thank you.